Hello, and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Academic Associate at the Sainsbury Institute, Dawa Scholar and Archaeology PhD student at the University of Cambridge, researching language and interpretation at Japanese war heritage sites. Today we are joined by Susan Furukawa, Associate Professor of Modern Languages and Literatures at Beloitsu College, to discuss history and fiction through works on the iconic and problematic life of 16th century shogun Toyotomi Hideyoshi. Susan and I look at how Hideyoshi sought to establish his own literary legacy, how he has been made a hero in different ways through the 20th century, and why darker elements of his past have failed to break through in these narratives. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, good afternoon, Susan. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Sure. My expertise is in Japanese literature, and in particular, I'm interested in Japanese historical fiction, how the past is remembered, and how that intersects with popular culture in Japan. Um, I mean, how did I get interested in these things? I suppose it's a bit of a long story, like so many of our stories are in terms of how we get to our research. Um, But it actually started when I was an undergrad, when two things happened that made me leave the pre-business track and turn to Japanese studies. First, when I worked as a cashier at the campus bookstore, I saw a lot of really cool books. And it turned out that all of them were about Japan. So I dropped all the classes I was registered for, and I re-registered for classes that had cool books. Um, Second, I heard a friend do a dramatic reading of a passage from Natsume Soseki's novel Kokoro. And even though he only did like a page and a half, it was so different than anything I had read before that it made me want to read the whole book. So I went and got the book, read the book, and then was immediately hooked on Japanese literature. Um, And in particular, I was interested in how the sociocultural context of the Meiji period, which, you know, is 1868 to 1912, how that period in Japan was reflected in Soseki's writing um, and how that affected the types of stories he told. So I spent a lot of my undergrad years looking at that question. Um, Years later, when I was living in Japan, the question came back to me, this question of why we tell the stories we tell when we tell them, um, but from a really different direction. So at the time, I noticed that pretty much every Japanese person I knew would drop what they were doing on Sunday evening so they could watch the historical taiga drama. So the taiga drama is this weekly 45-minute long episode that goes for an entire year, starts in January, and it ends in December. Um, And the year I became aware of the taiga drama, ironically, the topic was Hideyoshi. Later, when I was doing my research, I realized that something like 40% of all taiga drama have to do with Sengoku-era samurai, so the Warring States period samurai, so Hideyoshi, Oronobunaga, a lot of those guys. Um, but when I first saw the show, I was really unimpressed. I thought that it was overly dramatic. I thought the acting wasn't that great. It felt kind of like a historical soap opera to me. So I was really confused why it was so popular. But I was also really struck by the fact that it was clearly providing for the viewers a representation of the past that resonated with them. To me, I could see all the ways that contemporary Japan was influencing this interpretation of the past. But I wondered if the people watching the show also saw that. So that became this new question that I wanted to answer was, 
um, how how does historical fiction reflect the present as much as it reflects the past? And so this began to motivate the ways that I thought about um, kind of what I wanted to do in the future. And of course, Tiger Drama are just one of many examples of this intersection of popular culture and history in Japan. Another really famous example is Chushingura or the tale of the 47 uh, masterless Ronin samurai or the 47 Ronin. Um, and then ironically, I found Hideyoshi in particular when I was taking this class in grad school that my uh, graduate advisor had pretty much made me take. I didn't really want to take it uh, because it was a pre-modern Japan class. And I was pretty sure that I wanted to do modern Japan in terms of my area of research. Um, and so when the final project came around, I was trying to find something I could research that was as close to the end of the pre-modern era as possible, um, which led me again to the three unifiers um, who were the three samurai who helped you know, unified Japan at the end of the 16th century. Um, and as I was looking at that and thinking about this question of historical tales being told over and over again, I happened to discover Taikoki. And when I put Taikoki, uh, this biography of Hideyoshi into a search engine, I got tons of hits online and kind of disco discovered for myself Taikoki for the first time. Fascinating. So uh, let's begin by looking at Toyotomi Hideyoshi, the subject of your new book, The Afterlife of Toyotomi Hideyoshi. He is most famously known as one of the three unifiers, along with Oda Nobunaga and Tokugawa Ieyasu, who came out on top of the Warring States periods to reunite Japan under a shogunate in the 16th century. There's a wonderful saying in Japan around rice cakes, which summarizes their, uh, their roles beautifully. Nobunaga pounded the rice, Hideyoshi baked the cake, and Tokugawa Ieyasu ate it. Could you expand on that for us? Sure. Um, so in the 1560s, Oda Nobunaga um, starts to unify the realm. He gets this idea that he wants to be the leader of the Tenka, or all that's under heaven. Um, and he makes a pretty good run of it. He start, starts defeating his enemies and pulling together various domains under his rule. Uh, but in 1582, he's betrayed by his vassal, Akiti Mitsuhide, uh, and then that gives Hideyoshi room to rise to the top. So Hideyoshi rises to power, and he's able to complete this process of unification of Japan uh, in 1590, but then he dies shortly thereafter, um, and he's unable to establish a dynasty. Um, he puts into place a lot of uh, policies that paved the way for what Tokugawa Ieyasu does, but Tokugawa Ieyasu definitely benefits from the work of his predecessors, ends up with this dynasty that lasts for, what, so, what, 1600 to 1868, so, you know, more than 250 years. Yeah. So you claim that of the three unifiers, Hideyoshi's story is the most popularly known in Japan. What elements of his life story, or literary afterlife, as you put it, are particularly compelling in your view? Yeah, so this is an interesting question that I had to wrestle with a lot. Um, who is or isn't more popular? And so I don't know if I want to stand by this claim that Hideyoshi is, in fact, more popular. But what I, the claim I do want to stand by is that Hideyoshi is, in fact, very much rewritten. There is a lot of literature, fiction, film about Hideyoshi, and that I find some really compelling information from looking at those things in particular. And in terms of what, what about his literary afterlife I find compelling, it's less the particular stories 
and more the fact that the stories keep being retold. Um, and also the fact that certain parts of his history don't get told, right? And so what is or isn't told is the is what I find the most compelling. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. It relates a lot to my own research, as we'll get on in a minute. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so your background is in Japanese literature. When do fictional narratives of Hideyoshi begin to appear historically, and how have they been put to use through to the present day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the original Taikoki was published in the 1620s, um, soon after Hideyoshi's death in 1598. It was written by his biographer, a Confucian scholar named Oze Hoan, who knew Hideyoshi well and who had seen his rise and fall. Um, so as such, he writes a history intended to instruct readers on the risks of not following the righteous way. Uh, in fact, in Taikoki, Oze writes, quote, when one yields to avarice, his descendants are ultimately brought to destruction. And one can't help as a reader to think that he's trying to, he's tying the demise of the Toyotoni clan uh, to Hideyoshi's behaviors toward the end of his life. So it's with that Taikoki that by Jose Juan that we really see the beginning of these fictionalizations of um, Hideyoshi. But I argue that even before Jose is fictionalizing Hideyoshi, Hideyoshi was fictionalizing himself. He, there's a long history of Hideyoshi basically throughout his life telling stories about who he was and um, many of them not true. Um, and so he was what Stephen Greenblatt refers to as a self-fashioner. Um, um, and so he was kind of fashioning his own tale. Jose Juan then turns around and tells a different tale about him. And then many subsequent Taikoki or many subsequent stories about Hideyoshi are based on Oze's Taikoki. Um, and they have continued into the present. So we see them throughout the Edo period. We see them throughout the Meiji period. We see them into the 20th century, into the 21st century. Um, it's just been a kind of a constant throughout all those years. And has he been seen as like a positive character and a, a tragic hero? What, what, what sort of image does he have in Japan throughout this time? So it depends on the time we're talking about, and it depends on who the author is. What uh, in, in the book, I focus on, um, really, I focus on World War II and the immediate post-war. Um, and the first author that I look at is Yoshikawa Eiji. Um, and I look at a serialization of Taikoki that was happening during World War II. And in that case, we see Hideyoshi very much being portrayed as a hero. He's seen as being the first successful Pan-Asianist. He's an altruistic Pan-Asianist. So instead of his invasions of Korea, the Korean Peninsula being read as what it actually was, which was an aggressive attempt to take over the Korean Peninsula, um, it's now read as this, you know, part, this attempt to kind of bring East Asia together, right? And so what we see in um, Yoshikawa Eiji's Taikoki then is a lot of stories about Hideyoshi being read as Hideyoshi being a model for how you can be an, uh, an ideal citizen during war, how you can support your country during war. Uh, then immediately after World War II, once censorship has been lifted and it's permissible to write about samurai heroes again, one of the first things we see coming out are stories of Hideyoshi as a successful businessman. There's this great novel by Kasahara, set of novels by Kasahara Ryozo uh, that puts Hideyoshi in 
a business setting. So it starts with him as a graduating senior. He's looking for a job. He wants to work for Japan's most successful and prestigious company, Japan Motor. Um, and he, it's all about how he gets the job and how he's successful at the job. And uh, all the stories kind of parallel famous tales about Hideyoshi that we know from historical accounts. And, um, and so we see those, but we also see the rise of these human resource management manuals where you too can become a, huge, a successful human resource manager like Hideyoshi. So uh, in the 60s, we see a move toward that. Uh, but then toward the end of the 60s, we also see some criticism of this idea of Hideyoshi as this unblemished hero. Um, probably my the, my most favorite, I mean, it's hard to pick a favorite because I really loved all the literature I looked at for this book. But I would say one of my favorites is um, Tsuchiya Yastaka's novella, Yamasaki, uh, which is, you know, it's about the moment after uh, Akiti Mitsuhide betrays Oda Nobunaga and he flee, he flees or he marches on and then Hideyoshi manages to move his troops and, and meet him in battle. Um, and so that famous battle is at Yamasaki. Um, and so the novella is about that moment in history, but it includes all of these intrusions of 1960s Japanese culture um, some of the most famous scenes happen on bullet trains. In fact, <laughs> the reason that Hideyoshi is able to move his troops so quickly, which has always been one of the historical questions, how did Hideyoshi get his troops there so quickly, was because he, he was able to secure the most bullet train tickets in the shortest period of time. <laughs> and so he's able to get his guys there sooner than anybody else and avenge Oda Nobunaga's death. Um, perhaps, you know, one of my favorite scenes in that is the conductor coming to apologize for delays because the tracks are flooded and one of uh, Hideyoshi's vassals stands up and cuts the conductor down right in the middle of this pristine bullet train car and, you know, gasp, the conductor collapses on the lap of a newlywed in the front seat. Um, and so if you think of the barbarity of what samurai really represented and you think of them as being heroes, it becomes somewhat ironic. Uh, and I think Yamazaki, or, or excuse me, I think that Tsutsu Yastaka's novella was trying to, to get at that. Uh, That's a very refreshing take. <laughs> yeah, I think it's pretty interesting. And then, of course, when we, the, the most eye opening chapter for me as I wrote it and then kind of thought about it and then rewrote it was, was the writing that women writers of historical fiction were doing about Hideyoshi. Um, and they had a very critical, if not subtle, sometimes very subtle, but also very critical view of, of Hideyoshi. Um, and they often would either criticize him by having the women around him question what he was doing or, um, you know, focus on how what he was doing was impacting negatively the people around him. Um, and so they would, the women writers of historical fiction were writing about that in ways that nobody else was. And they were also including in their uh, accounts moments that had been left out of many other accounts I was reading. So for example, um, talking about the failed invasions of Korea as being failed invasions of Korea, talking about um, the murder of his nephew and his nephew's family 
at the hand of Hideyoshi, um, and so or, or of Hideyoshi's people. So a lot of those things got included um, in the text by women that weren't included in the text I was reading that were written by men. Mm. Fascinating. I'm really interested in what you mentioned earlier about Hideyoshi making up his own life story uh, right at the beginning, because uh, in earlier episodes, we've looked at the challenge of discerning mythology from history through the life of the 7th century prince Shotoku Taishi, where we uh, remarked that the cult of personality around Shotoku was so rich that to, trying to discern historical facts from it was uh, almost a futile effort. Did you come to a similar conclusion with Hideyoshi narratives, or is there a clear split between the historical and fictional works? Yeah, I don't think I uh, could ever argue that there's a clear split between historical and fictional works. Um, I think that's probably because I've been influenced a lot by Hayden White's ideas about emplotment. White argues that any historical event can be implotted in any number of ways, uh, and that the ways are often influenced by the perspectives of the person writing the history. Um, and Japanese scholars in, of history and scholars of historical fiction and writers of historical fiction have all spent a lot of time thinking about and writing about this question. Um, much ink has been spilled over many, many pages. And having looked at a lot of that, um, the conclusion I've come to is it's complicated. Um, that there isn't a clear answer to that question. I think there are certainly moments where we can look at a historical source and say, yes, this historical source tells us some things that we can probably agree is true. Uh, but you, there's often the case that there can be multiple historical sources by people who were near living at or near the time of the event, and they still tell different stories. Um, and so I think I decided to kind of not try to answer that question, right, where the line is with Hideyoshi, but instead to just look at the different ways that different stories are told and think about what's going on at the time these stories are told that might be influencing those stories. I see. Fascinating. Uh, so from my own research on the Mimizuka Hill of Ears burial mound in Kyoto, uh, which contains severed ears and noses from Hideyoshi's invasion of the Korean peninsula, there are certainly grisly elements to his legacy, although I'm delighted to see that the that Mimizuka gets a mention in your book. Uh, do these make it through to fictional narratives, or is there little room for contentious history there? Yeah, this is a great question. This is what really compelled me to keep going on this project because toward the end of his life, Hideyoshi um, did a lot of things that were contentious, right? I've mentioned the invasions of the Korean Peninsula a couple of times uh, leading to the Mimizuka, uh, but also, you know, ordering the suicide of his trusted advisor, DQ, the tea, famous tea master, like I mentioned before, ordering the murder um, or ritual suicide of his his uh, nephew and successor, and including all of his household, including the women and children. Um, and so there are lots of things that were happening toward the end of his life that aren't terribly heroic, to say the least. Um, and often those get left out of the stories that are being told. Um, and so for many years, those got left out of the stories. Uh, more recently, I'm starting to see them being portrayed uh, in his taiga drama in stories about Hideyoshi 
uh, I, I've seen them, especially in these in the writing of the, the women novelists that I looked at, Nagai Michiko and Ariyoshi Sawako, they both include those in their stories. Um, and so I, I argue in the book that things being left out is uh, almost important as what's being let, put in to a lot of these novels. So I'm kind of curious, though, as to why these things are left out. I mean, I initially thought that maybe it's because it doesn't really make for a good story. But those final acts of his life you just mentioned would that, that would make you know Shakespeare would make three plays out of that, that, that kind of material. So um, why do you think it is that these things are left out? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think because it's not particularly heroic, uh, and I think especially. If the narrative is that Hideyoshi is one of the three unifiers who helped bring about what we now know of as Japan, uh, it's less pleasant to have those stories in in the stories we tell. Um, but it, even that's oversimplified because, you know, we do have a lot of barbaric tales about Oda Nobunaga that have made it out into the world. So, But I guess that those tales of, of Nobunaga, they fit his character of being the ruthless warrior as opposed to the state-maker hero of Hideyoshi. Right, that's what I was going to say. I suppose it just doesn't fit with the larger narrative. And so it really struck me with Yoshikawa Eiji's novel. It's a really long novel. Uh, it was serialized for six years or about six years. Um, and then he went on to finish it later. But, you know, it ends at the point where he has unified the realm and he's, you know, Yoshikawa Eiji is like, okay, good. I'm good. I'm done. And he, <laughs> Yoshikawa Eiji is asked, you know, why, why did you stop there? And he says, well, because I don't think anybody wants to read the rest of that story. They want to read the story of him making his way up in the world. And I think that's one of the narratives that's really popular with Hideyoshi is this idea of Nishin Chusei, right. Or of making your way up in the world. Does that make sense, that phrase? So, you know, Hideyoshi's kind of this um, rags to riches story, right? He's born in poverty. He doesn't even have any rank at all. And he manages to rise all the way up to ruler of the realm. And so that story about Hideyoshi is the one that is compelling for a lot of people. And mm -hmm. the stuff that happens at the end of his career don't really fit into that narrative. Yeah. So it becomes kind of like a chicken egg situation where that became the dominant narrative because that's the story that Hideyoshi wanted remembered. But now that that's a story that most people are used to, they don't want to hear anything that could challenge that. Right. And but also <laughs> I think that, again, so many times his story has been utilized as a motivational tale for you too can overcome your lowly beginnings and become famous, become successful, become a wealthy businessman, right? You too can do this so that uh this idea of you know boys be ambitious uh yeah. you can you can overcome so i think i mean part of it is hideyoshi telling those stories but part of it is people really latching onto this notion that uh people like hideyoshi were able to overcome their lowly beginnings and unify japan that's a pretty compelling tale yeah yeah for sure and i guess from an historian's perspective, uh, as much as <laughs> um, false histories can be irritating, uh, if we can call them false histories, I suppose that at this stage, you can see that, okay, there's this historical figure of Hideyoshi who has a complicated story that's fascinating to look into, but a bit disturbing. And then there's the mythological 
Hideyoshi almost, who is born of these narratives and is almost a separate entity. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I, and again, I'm not a historian, I'm a lit scholar. And so I'm really interested in these narratives and why they're formed and what we can learn from that, yeah. which is what I try to talk about in the book. So this practice of producing fictional works around historical figures is still alive and well. Uh, to take the UK, for example, there are at least 14 films about Winston Churchill and countless more books, uh, with the most recent film produced in 2017. What is it about the lives of great people that inspire centuries of creative works about their lives? And in the age of pop culture, why does demand endure? So, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons that quote-unquote hero stories tend to endure first i think they can be really inspiring and motivating for people second in times of uncertainty there's a tendency to turn to moments from the past where someone or some ones have behaved in ways that show great courage and that lead a struggling nation to define itself right we see that all the time and third there's a lot of comfort in having these shared narratives you know um uh, and there's also a lot of enjoyment and seeing how those shared narratives get changed or tweaked by various creators of pop culture. Um, and so I think, especially, you know, in the 21st century, it's a lot of the latter where people know these stories. There are specific tales about Hideyoshi that people are familiar with. And it's a lot of fun to see those stories being manipulated in, in different ways. Of course, this all assumes in some ways that our reading of these so-called great people remains rather shallow because as soon as we scratch the surface and look into the source materials more, it's, it's a lot harder for the heroes to remain unblemished. Yeah. And could, could you argue that it's more problematic to be making heroes out of historical figures than fictional figures? Huh. I have not thought about that question before. <laughs> I, is it? That's your next book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. I don't, yeah, I haven't thought about that question before. I think if, it's done without any kind of reflection. Making heroes out of historical figures is problematic. I don't think that that happens as much anymore, right? I think that there's a lot more kind of recognition of the reality of what samurai did, for example, right? It's, they weren't all just kind of these swashbuckling heroes. They were also fairly barbaric um, and not always making the best choices, shall we say. Um, but I, I would argue that the stories of actual historical figures from the past are, are more compelling in lots of ways than fictional heroes. So I guess I don't know the answer to that question because I suppose it depends on what kind of stories people want to hear, doesn't it? Yeah, and it comes back to that point that you mentioned earlier of how, where does demand for certain stories come from? Is it does it lie with the original writers with the power or does it come from the audience who consume that and then demand more it's difficult to properly work out the source of that <laughs> right right yeah i was just going to say that uh the consumer and consumption plays a part in this for sure yeah definitely well thank you for answering all of my questions susan before we finish the episode could you share with us what other projects are currently working on Sure. Um, I've enjoyed talking with you. I'm glad we had a chance to do this. Thank you. Um, so in terms of what I'm work looking at working on next or what I've started working on next, um, I'm going to continue to do this work with Japanese historical fiction, uh, but really focus on women writers of historical fiction. Um, as I mentioned several times while we've been talking, uh, the way that women write history 
became really intriguing for me the more I read it. Um, and it also became clearer to me that a lot of the women writers of historical fiction are writing against certain expectations of what women should write. Uh, so let me explain that a little bit. So if you look at debates, usually by men, about fiction written by women starting in the Meiji period, there's an ongoing assumption, again, predominantly by men, that women should only write in a certain way and about certain things. And so from the beginning of kind of modern writing by women, we see women pushing against these assumptions. Really throughout the 20th century, we've continued to see women write against these notions. And as I was doing my research for this book, I realized that women writers of historical fiction have faced even more limitations in terms of what they quote unquote should write, right? Not only are they women writers, so they should be writing in a certain way about certain things, but they're also writing history, which women aren't supposed to write about at all uh, in terms of thinking at the time, right? In terms of kind of early 20th century thinking and really even into the late 20th century. Um, so history, after all, is long thought, has long been thought to be the purview of men, right? And so in my project, I'll be exploring the ways that women writers seek to subvert that notion and to really push against this idea that men are the makers and recorders of history. So some of the authors I'm really interested in right now, I continue to be interested in Ariyoshi Sawako and Nagai Michiko, but I also have started doing a lot of work with uh, Nogami Yaiko. So we'll see where that leads, but that's kind of what I've been reading about and thinking about lately. Great. I look forward to seeing what comes out of that. Thank you for joining me again, Susan. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. You can find a link to Susan's research profile in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe on japaninnorwich.org or on your preferred podcast provider for updates on new episodes. You can also get in touch to recommend topics to the podcast at o.moxon at sainsbury-institute.org. For our next episode, I'll be joined by Daniel Milne, Senior Lecturer at Kyoto University's Institute for Liberal Arts and Sciences, to discuss what happens when we memorialize past conflicts through the Kyoto Buddhist Temple, Gyozen Canon. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening. <laughs>